The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter agents of Spectrum. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 13, Lord of the Geeks, and we'll be talking with Paul Simpson, who has written about nearly everything geeky while working on magazines like Dreamwatch and Star Trek, and writing such books as Middle Earth Envisioned, A Brief Guide to Oz, and Doctor Who at 50, not to mention all of the cool people he has interviewed over his years covering science fiction, film, and television. But first, I want to encourage our listeners to interact with us via the interwebs. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our website, generationsgeek.com, which provides handy links to all of our shows stored safely in the titanium vault of the Chronic Rift Network. You can always email questions for us or our guests to thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. And now, all the way from England, let's bring on our guests. Mr. Paul Simpson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. We've known each other for a number of years now and have worked together on various things that'll come up as we uh, work through the discussion. Kid, do you want to get things started by asking a, a question? Sure. What got you started in geekdom? I just loved it from longer than I can remember, to be honest. Um, I was watching Doctor Who when I was very young. Um, I got the original three novels from the library. They, were, they printed three novelizations in the mid-60s uh, of three of the William Hartnell stories, and I got those out from the library. Um, I watched it when Doctor Who, when it was on television over here. I watched Star Trek when it came over here in 69-70. Um, um, I'm a lot older than I look. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's my line, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, so, yes, I'm not, I always have done. They, I collected Who books and um, Star Trek books. Mm -hmm. I loved the Jerry Anderson shows as a kid. Um, oh, Jerry Anderson. We love Jerry Anderson. Well, we'll put, <laughs> we will put a plug in a little later for the new Anderson project. Yes, yes, uh, we will. I'm very excited about. So, um, so yes, I mean that, that's the answer. I mean, it, it, it's been part of my DNA, for want of a better phrase, from the word go. And do you read science fiction novels and stuff, or do you? Is your interest primarily in the television shows? Oh no, I mean I read across the board now. Okay. Um, a kid, um, that, that was how I got started into it. Yeah. But no, I mean I read. Um, you know, I went through the, the, the basics everybody did. You know, I've still got the initial version of um, Asimov that I had. I mean, the first book of his, if I remember rightly, was Pirates of the Asteroids that I was mm. given when I was quite young and then sort of went from there into the robot stories and stuff like that. Um, from there, developed into Frank Herbert and, you know, a sort of very general yeah. sci-fi background. Um, but screen has always been a particular love yeah. um, and you know the, the, the sort of the paraphernalia that goes with it mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as a child were either of your parents 
interested in genre material. The exact opposite. They were very much against the time that I spent in the imaginary world. I was at um, what over in Britain, a public school, which is a private school mm-hmm. for you, uh, where which was very academically um, inclined. And the time that I spent reading the latest Target book or something like that was time that I should have been spent on things that were more worthy. Um, <laughs> and as has been pointed out on numerous occasions, I have then spent my time actually making a living from it for the last 20 years. And so have they ever commented on that, um, the way it turned out? Yes, I mean, my mother passed in um, 2002, but um, beforehand she had seen me working on Dreamwatch magazine and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think that she saw that as a waste of <laughs> my talents, for, again, what's a better phrase. Um, as far as my dad's concerned, um, particularly, you know, books and things like that, it's something I'm doing that I enjoy doing and that other people seem to get enjoyment from. And I think that the argument that I made to them, which was that maybe I'm not, you know, helping to save people's lives or anything like that, um, what I am doing and what I have done is to provide entertainment and provide something that people uh, can relax with, um, which is yeah. a key part. Um, no, I, I do sometimes think, and I can remember there was a time when my uh, daughter's mother was a nurse and was earning considerably less than I was uh, for doing a science fiction magazine, and there is something wrong about that. <laughs> you mentioned Dreamwatch magazine. Yeah. Was that your first pro job in the geek field? Yes. And how did you come to uh, to score that gig? I was very ill in uh, late 1995. And when I came out from hospital, basically, I'd been a fan of Dreamwatch I'd, uh, and DWB as its predecessor was. And uh, got in touch with the guy who ran it, a guy called Gary Lee and pointed out to him the rather large number of errors there were in the most recent issue that he put out. Um, Gary had recently taken Dreamwatch from being a fan magazine and put it onto the high street. And as he has admitted himself, it is a completely different field. Um, What you do for something that's read by X number of hundred people compared with what you want to be read by X number of thousand people um, is a very different ball game if you're a week late to fan magazine it's not the end of the world if you're a week late to pro magazine it's you know it can be the end of you um and he got in touch and basically said would you like to come aboard as a proofreader and from proofreader to editor was a period of eight weeks (laughs) (laughs) um he needed an article written in a hurry about a particular Doctor Who story, which I turned around in about an hour and a half. And we're talking about the days before email, where yeah. in order for him to have it, I had to get it down to the local post office on guaranteed delivery so that he had it arrive where he was the next yeah. morning. Otherwise, it wouldn't make the schedule. And, uh, you know, I did that. Um, it was an article that didn't need much of any editing. In fact, I think he edited a mistake into it. Um, <laughs> one of my little bugbears, that. But anyway, and it was sort of, well, you know, would you like to be involved with that? And that led to the next five years or so of um, very interesting times. Um, some very, very great highs and some and some lows with it. But, um, you know, it was a, a very steep learning curve to begin with. 
And that was a monthly? Uh, yes. And so you went from really never having worked in the magazine field to very quickly being an editor under those kinds of deadlines. Yeah. Wow. But I, I worked as, you know, I'd edited fan stuff and I'd been involved with various things, um, you know, on and off over the years. Yeah. It's just a question, you know, a large part of it, um, as you know yourself with when you're editing, is um, self-discipline. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, yes, fine, that job might be able to be left for a couple of days, but if you leave it, then the jobs that you've got coming up two days later are going to get mucked up. So, yeah. And that, I think, is something that uh, sometimes gets overlooked. It, that sort of time management skill is part of it, definitely. Yeah, it's a huge part. When you start really cracking down on yourself, it's amazing how much you can really get done <laughs> in a day. Yes, there's a look of absolute horror on Ella's face at the thought you're actually sitting down, cracking down and doing some work. <laughs> she looks absolutely horrified. I, I have homework. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, eh. Yes, it is. I mean, when I write, uh, many, many years ago, I had the pleasure uh, of interviewing a scriptwriter by the name of Malcolm Hulk, who created the Silurians and the Sea Devils for Doctor Who, amongst mm. many others. And this was when I was in my mid-teens, when I first got involved with... Um, Doctor Who fandom, I contacted a couple of writers um, literally by finding their phone numbers in the directory and ringing them up and saying, Can I, are you the person who writes Doctor Who? Can I come and talk to you? But it worked, and you know, they were quite surprised yeah. when a 13 or 14-year-old turned up on their doorstep. But with Mac, he had um, graphs that showed word count against days. And for years, I never, ever understood what they were about until I started book writing again recently. Yeah. Um, and I have an Excel chart for every book that shows how many words I have got to get done per day. And if I don't achieve that, you know, then it means the average the next day has got to go up. Yep, that's exactly what I've been doing on my last couple of projects as well. You have that spreadsheet going, keeps your running word count right, yep. at, right at your fingertips. It's so helpful. It's, it's absolutely vital. Did you go straight from Dreamwatch to star trek magazine or was there something else in between there no i was freelance for a time in 2000 gary decided that he was going to try and reposition dreamwatch in the marketplace um we had been basically a small screen with some film uh material usually film material that had come through contacts that we'd gotten from the small screen so we'd done a lot of stuff uh, I spent a lot of time on the Beat Babylon 5 set. Um, cool. Thanks to Joe Straczynski and um, Jeff Willis there. And got to know people there. I got to know people on the Stargate set. I got to know people on the track set. And sometimes they would be involved with movies. And it would be a question of, oh, well, here's the publicist's um, details. You know, and you sort of got a connection that way. Gary decided that the future was big screen rather than small screen. Mm -hmm. I disagreed with that. I didn't think that and its small independent magazine had the capacity to punch so far above its weight. I mean, we DreamWatch was unfortunate in that it went into the marketplace very shortly after SFX came out. And SFX basically had the whole power of uh, future publishing behind it. Um, we had... At our height, Gary, myself, a designer, and an office manager. 
Wow. And that was it. And we did everything. Putting um, out we, a monthly magazine. Yeah. Uh, and we put and we put out a monthly magazine. And a monthly pro magazine. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, impressive. It was, and yeah, and it was incredibly tiring. I mean, it was, um, you know, a sixteen, eighteen hour a day job to do it, and you know, it was. It, I was glad to be rid of it at the end. <laughs> um, but I really didn't, as I say, I really didn't think that um, it was going to work in that format, um, and so I resigned. Um, we looked into various possibilities as to, you know, um, what might happen, and um, in the end, by mutual agreement, um, I well, it was mutual agreement after I told him I was leaving, um, <laughs> and uh, I went freelance. It was that was shortly after um, I had done the first of the Farscape books. Titan Books had got the rights to do the making of books on Farscape. Uh, which was the first of their companion series. I think it was David Barraclough at Titan had got in touch because I'd done some interviews on Farscape uh, and said, would I be interested in working on it? And because of the time pressure that there was, there were two of us, David Hughes and myself, um, who basically split the work on that first book. And I think we had something silly like six weeks to get it written in, mm -hmm. to get it written in. Um, he knew Rocco Bannon already. Um, I knew some of the other production personnel, and between it, between us, we did it. But it did show there were other avenues to go down. Um, I was also at the time working with a photographer by the name of Ruth Thomas, and the two of us thought that we could probably um, set up shop together um, and provide a sort of writing and photography service for interviews and things like that, which worked to an extent. Um, it wasn't perfect by any means but it, it did survive for a couple of years in that format and we did material for SFX and for Titans licensed magazines and various other people wrote a couple more Farscape guides went down to Australia for three weeks to visit the set and spend time in 50 degree heat um, and feeling very that's 50 degree Celsius yeah so <laughs> we are talking a hundred and uh, somebody else do the math um, he, uh, the actors were in rubber and you know latex gear. It wasn't just you know we were fine. We were in t-shirts and shorts. Yeah. Um, uh, but Anthony Simcoe as Dargo, you know, had the huge latex head with yeah. the pills and everything on it. Um, you know, it was okay for the puppets. They didn't mind too much, but yeah, <laughs> even they melted a bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I had that time, and then I spent. Um, the next two or three years working freelance for, again, for Titans magazines. What did we have then? Um, I think Stargate might have been running by then. Certainly there was Trek, there was Star Wars. There, you know, there were various things that I would do interviews and whatever for. I did a column for Cable Guide magazine over here when we still had cable before uh, everything sort of went on digital satellite. So there were various things that sort of kept ticking over, although it wasn't the greatest um, of money-making things. But I worked on various other books. I worked on the books on Wallace and Gromit, um, on The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Uh, I was asked uh, and on a film called Dougal in the States, The Magic Roundabout in Britain, um, which was based on an old French TV series, a uh, uh, puppet show 
which they did as a CG animation, which they was quite popular over here. Um, they revoiced it for America, re-released it as Dougal, and it uh, disappeared without trace. Yeah, I don't recall ever hearing about it. Uh, it's not bad. Um, the US, the DVD in America is a complete recut of the movie. Oh. Uh, I've got both versions, and you know, you they are two completely different films using the same CG. Um, so, yeah, did some stuff on that. I was asked to come in and ghostwrite the uh, book on the making of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie, and then got asked by Brian Robert Titan if I would come in and help out on a reprint of some of the old Dreamwatch material. Uh, that had come about because a year after I left Dreamwatch, um, Gary Lee was forced to sell it. The revamp hadn't worked. Um, it had, you know, just not been what the market was looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Titan bought it in, and they reverted it more to its um, to its roots, to the TV side. I mean, they still had film, and because they had the benefits of obviously being a publishing company, yeah, uh, with more people involved, they were able to get more film stuff in. But it's still never really um, worked as well as I think anybody wanted it to. And one of the things they decided to do was do a compilation of the best of the old magazine. So Brian said to me, you know, would I be interested in coming in and editing that? And they were going to call it Total Sci-Fi. And I said yes, but then within, I think, a week of conversations, we realised actually what would make far more sense was to do a completely new magazine and that's what we did was we did top tens and everything like that and it was i think 80 percent new material and 20 percent old material and most of that was stuff that i had done which we knew there was no question over who had rights and whatever of it so at that point uh titan had just acquired the rights to do the worldwide license for star trek because star trek communicator had failed Uh, for whatever reason, and um, they were therefore looking for an editor who would be able to work on it to appeal to a worldwide audience um, rather than just the British. Right. And uh, Brian Robb, who was managing editor for Titan at that point, uh, asked me if I'd be interested, knowing that I was a Star Trek fan I'd written for him when he edited the magazine and for um, the other editors, Nick Jones, Toby Vibin, etc., Rich Matthews. So it was a, would you like to do it? Would you be interested? They obviously knew of my experience from Dreamwatch of being able to put a, mar- a magazine out there that would work in both US and European markets. Um, and I jumped at it. Um, as much as anything else, it came at the right time for me career-wise. Um, freelance work in the mid-noughties wasn't particularly around very much. A lot of stuff was going back in-house at magazines. So therefore... Uh, the idea of a job that you know wasn't full time; it was a job that I could do along with other things. Uh, sounded good, and yes, yeah, so that's how I got into Trek. And then that is how I got to know you, because I was uh, noticing that a bunch of the gang, <laughs> uh, Dayton Ward, etc., etc., uh, were writing articles for Star Trek magazine, and I thought, wow. I should be writing articles for Star Trek magazine. So I got in touch with you through Trek BBS and said I wanted to throw my hat into the ring on this, and uh, and you gave me a shot. 
Yeah. Which well, was very kind of you. You've picked up on one of the, the key things that I did with the magazine that um, I think was different from both my predecessors and my successors. I saw Trek literature, particularly in that period, post the end of Enterprise and while the whole JJ project was still very much up in the air, none of us knew anything really about it, um, that Trek literature was what was keeping the franchise going. There yes. were new stories coming out, and I think at that point we may still have been even in the two books a month period at the start, but we certainly yeah, were around that time. Um, so the people who wrote the characters, um, Dave Mack, Dayton, um, Kevin, you know, Keith Gandalf, you know, all of these people were people who clearly, because of the nature of the job that they were being paid to do, in the same way that I was being paid to be CBS's representative on Earth in England, mm -hmm. um, they, to an extent, were being CBS's representatives in the book world. And I knew that, you know, if they wrote a line in which Christine Chapel decided that actually she'd always wanted to be a pioneer and was going to go off and, I don't know, eat dinosaurs three times a week, it probably <laughs> wouldn't get through the approvals process. Unless it was a Wednesday, in which case. Um, so that was the logic behind it. And that that was how I got to know. And I mean, Trek through Trek BBS, I got to know, I think uh, it was it was Dayton um, was the first of the writers I brought on. And through Dayton, I got to know a lot of the others. And that was basically by the, I'd say, for a good two-thirds of my time editing Trek, um, a good majority of the articles were written by people who had made their bones writing short stories, novels, whatever. I mean, David R. George III um, wrote a fantastic series of articles for me um, on it, and it's one of the shames that because of the whole copyright situation and who owns what and everything like that, that those articles can't be reprinted as a book, because I think they should be. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, the whole certain of the the things that we did there, the forty fives, which was our way of marking the forty fifth anniversary of Trek by taking every forty fifth story chronologically and seeing how that showed the development of Star Trek as a franchise and as a TV series and everything. Yeah, you know, I've still got they're, they're some of the few bits that I've actually still kept easily to hand, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, that they make really interesting reading. What's your coolest celebrity encounter story? Um, that you can share yeah, publicly. Yeah, so I was just thinking that there, there is one that's great that, um, yeah, that, that I can say privately, but it's not something that I can put in. Um, I think, actually, it's got to be having the phone go at home and this voice on the other end saying, Good evening, it's Leonard Nimoy here. <laughs> and, oh, oh, oh. you know, you've just got... Um, <laughs> This was before the Trek movie, before the first one, mm -hmm. uh, when I was doing the interviews with um, the cast. And so, you know, Leonard rang me at home. Wow. Um, it's interesting. I don't think you know how much I would die <laughs> if that happened. <laughs> I just well, drop the phone, be like, <laughs> I have to go do a thing and just start running. Not, don't stop. You'd just be running down the street waving your arms, screaming. Len would still be waiting on the phone saying, hello, hello. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm Skyping you from the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is that you have to, doing what I do, you almost have to put that aside because you yeah. have 
is a job. Um, you know, I've spoken to pretty much everybody on Trek um, at some point or other. I have, you know, th- there are other things with it, with Sci-Fi Bulletin now. I've been lucky enough to go along to some of the big Finnish recordings. And I had a wonderful day about two months ago um, attending the recording of one of Tom Baker's um, things. And we sat in the green room, and I can't repeat one of the stories, but there was Tom, there was <laughs> Louise Jameson there from Doctor Who and Tenko, um, and Stephanie Cole from Waiting for God and Tenko. Um, and it was just, the stories were just absolutely wonderful flying around. But you also got into quite serious conversations. Uh, there were various um, news stories a day of, you know, of quite serious import that we got into as well. And that's the side of what I've done for the last 20 years that is the coolest. Yeah. It's not the, oh, I've been in a room with Schwarzenegger or I've been in a room with Tom Cruise or I've been in a room with, you know, insert name of celebrity here. It's spending time chatting to people generally um, and getting to know people who I wouldn't have had a chance to otherwise. How much do you and your daughter do geeky things together? As much as I can, that is the honest answer. She lives with her mum, so I see her quite regularly, but, um, you know, she's not with me all the time. But, for instance, this weekend, one of the very early Doctor Who stories, the Aztecs, has recently been released in a special edition. We sat and watched four episodes of a 50-year-old science fiction series together. When she wasn't doing that and when she wasn't doing her homework, she is on the fourth of the Game of Thrones volumes. She got the first... Her cousins got her into it and she has devoured <laughs> the novels. I mean, she got through the first volume, the 800 pages, in something like four days. She, you know, she, she has got my fast reading ability. In a couple of weeks' time, we will be going up to the British Film Institute for another one of their Doctor Who at 50 events, which we've been to two of them, three of them, I can't remember, Um, together, which are basically where they show uh, an old story uh, on the big screen, and then there's a panel with people involved with the making or the production generally from that period uh, there. So... You know, we go up and we've enjoyed that. She's coming with me to the big Doctor Who 50th anniversary, um, whatever they call it, extravaganza, yeah. convention, whatever, wow, on the 24th of November. Great. Um, yeah, she she has loved it, and, um, you know, if, if there's things that she can do, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not as interested in the making of programs in the same way that I am so for her it's seeing the stuff on the big screen is fascinating yeah um and meeting some of the people has she been able to meet anyone that just really you know that she was incredibly excited to get the chance to meet and is it going to make me jealous <laughs> I don't know um, <laughs> for her the, the the two that I know she's really enjoyed meeting were Chase Masterson oh yeah Deep Space Nine who is lovely and is absolutely fantastic with her um, and Annika Wills, who was one of the first Doctor's companions, and we oh. met up at um, thing. And she's uh, met Nick Briggs and Barney Edwards, who um, Dalek voice and the Daleks. So for her, you know, she, they're, they're cool for her because she can associate them with the people. She's, you know, she's seen people in the flesh like Peter Davison and whatever. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting. I don't know how much it impresses her because there's certain things that she's used to. I mean, at the time when she was born in the summer of uh, 2002, uh, I was doing a lot of work on Farscape, so therefore she has christening gifts um, and there were cards that I believe that are still around somewhere from people from the shows that <laughs> I was working on at the time. Because yeah. in the same way that I'm sure that you got cards yeah, you know, when Ella was born from your co-workers. Yeah. It's, you know, they happened to be my co-workers were people whose names other people would recognise at that time. Yeah. You know, it would have been two or three years later. They wouldn't have been. Um, and I think that's the, uh, that, that's the key thing is that, yes, this is a job. Um, it's a cool job. I enjoy it tremendously. <laughs> um, but I don't do it to meet, you know, to meet important people. It's yeah. Um, yeah, that's an. It's nice, and, and I enjoy, it and I I love interviewing. It's something that uh, I seem to be good at, and that people enjoy having. And I, I always enjoy going on set, you know, for Merlin or Primeval, or you know, going over to Vancouver for New World last year. Um, yeah, there is something terrific when um, <laughs> yeah you walk you walk in somewhere, and Amanda Tapping comes up, gives you a big hug. Because you haven't seen yeah. her for five years, you know yeah. it, that sort of thing. It's terrific, but it's the same way as it's seeing an old friend you haven't seen for some time. It just happens that people recognise the names of some of those yeah. friends. And I think that the kid wants to interject a little bit and tell her story. Thanks to Mr. Paul Simpson, oh. our fabulous guest. <laughs> I don't know how to start. Um... <laughs> uh, shall I introduce the story and then you can jump in? Yeah. Our listeners are probably familiar with the primeval television show, and the kid and I were both uh, big fans. And one time when uh, Paul was going to be going on set to do some interviews, he got in touch with me and asked if Ella would want anything from a particular actor, if one of the actors was her favorite. And I said, well, it would have to be Connor. Andrew Lee Potts, do you want to j jump in at, uh, or do you want me to keep going? Um, Let's toss it over yeah. to Paul. Yeah, I knew that um, both Scott and Ella were Primeval fans, and this was when Primeval was shooting uh, what Americans call Series 3 and what the rest of us call Series 4 and 5, um, <laughs> i.e. the Irish ones. I went out to Dublin and uh, was treated very much VIP, um, had one-on-one -on -one interviews with the cast including at that point cast members who I knew nothing really about the characters but one of them was Andrew and I said to him is there any chance and I, I had checked this out with the publicist first and said you know can you just quietly ask him about this because I don't want to put him on the spot if um, yeah. the case um, there is um, a young fan in the States who I know would absolutely adore hearing from you and he just said <laughs> Absolutely no problem. So we uh, took a photograph um, of him recording a special message for Ella. Uh, <laughs> and he was absolutely delighted to do it. He was charm itself. So I sent it across and I could hear the squee from here. <laughs> yeah. arrived. I sort of made this whole plan of how I was going to reveal it. I showed her a couple of the still photos that you had taken, milking the whole process. And I said, and do you know what he said? And so I sort of set it up in a way that she was expecting that I was just going to say to her, well, Paul told me that Andrew Lee Potts said. <laughs> but then at that point, that's when I clicked play. 
And before the squee started, her face just went blank, so overwhelmed by what had happened that for a moment, I felt like, oh my gosh, I've given her a stroke. <laughs> Your face just went just like completely blank, numb. And then after a beat, then, then the smile. <laughs> well, like, I didn't really, at that time, I didn't really watch a lot of like current TV shows. I was watching like old stuff that had been canceled. And so Primeval was like one of the only shows I watched that was actually current. Mm -hmm. And Connor was like my favorite character. And I just loved Primeval so much and still do. But it was just so huge to me then. I still have it on my iPod. Yep. Good. I always, whenever I get a new like iPod, I've gone through like probably like three <laughs> since then, and I always, it's always one of the things I put on there first. That is what I love about what I do. It reminds me when I took Soph to the my daughter to the Doctor Who prom uh, promenade concert um, in mid July, and we're sitting on the aisle as the Jadoon and the Whisperman and the Cybermen and whatever are coming down and there's these, you know, things. In front of us was a four-year-old, maybe five-year-old kid and the look of absolute wonder <laughs> on his face. Soph knows there's somebody inside. She knows the reality. Yeah. To this kid, it was still real. Being able to share that, yes, it's, it's really cool. You mentioned you spent time um, on the Merlin set or talking to the yes. cast. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that so I can yeah, fangirl was, some um, more? <laughs> the Merlin set, this was when they were filming the interior stuff in Cardiff or near Cardiff. Not, I didn't get out. I never got out to France, which was a shame. Um, I was invited on one of the trips and it just clashed with something else. But Merlin was a... What was very, really interesting about that was going down in year two and then going down in year five. In year two, um, it was it was a big show. In year five, it was a huge show. They were in a converted warehouse. Um, and in year two, they were probably using maybe 35, 40% of the space. In year five, the area where they could play table tennis or chill out during the breaks was now filled with a green screen set. The wardrobe that maybe had been, you know, was size A, was now size A squared, if not cubed. Uh, it just had become this absolutely amazing production. And the final um, episodes, the, the big battle at the end, the hillside, they had recreated the hillside in the studio uh, by bringing rocks and everything from the location. Wow. into the set because if you're on the side of a welsh mountain you can't <laughs> do the sort of close-up material and for, for sound reasons um for very sound reasons and for reasons of sound <laughs> um, you can't do the sort of close-ups and whatever that the scripts demand so that, yeah they actually they brought the mountain into the studio or a bit of it so that was really cool and what was also very nice about that show was that Unlike happens with some series, and um, don't press me for specifics on this, um, but you Certainly do find that in some shows, as the show goes on and the actors receive adulation, that it can, shall we say, go to the head a bit. Mm -hmm. 
with Merlin, um, Colin and Bradley, and in fact all of them, were just as down to earth uh, when you saw them in year five, when they were coming to the end of a grueling, a really grueling um, shoot. Uh, at that point, none of us were aware that it was the final series, that they were going to kill um, one of the characters off at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, if anybody hasn't seen it. Um, and well, they were shooting that finale. Uh, so they were having, the actors were having to keep very, very important information from us, from the journalists, um, while still, you know, uh, being as open as they could be. So I, you know, I really enjoy going on that set. Um, you know, being human was another one. The, the British original being human. Uh, both casts, the original cast who I met the first time round, I went down, and then the new cast when we went down for for the final series uh, were again same thing, very down to earth, genuinely appreciative of the attention that they got. Um, and you, you know, you you watched it and thought, you know, they, these are people who are really enjoying what they do. Yeah, I'm sure there were bad days. I'm sure there were days when they would rather not have been there. But um, yeah, that applies in whatever job you're doing. Let's go back and talk about Sci-Fi Bulletin. You basically started that yourself after your tenure on Star Trek magazine. Yes. I mean, what happened was um, when I decided to move on from Star Trek Mag. I was, at that point, I had done, that's what they want you to think for mm -hmm. you. Um, and I was still doing some freelance writing for Total Sci-Fi, which was the web continuation of Dreamwatch magazine. Dreamwatch had stopped in print at Christmas 2006, if I remember rightly. Um, and had become a web um, site called Total Sci-Fi. And I was doing reviews and I did, I did the news coverage for that for a time. Um, but then, for whatever reasons, I, I don't know the ins and outs um, of it, but it was decided that that wasn't going to continue. Uh, Titan didn't want it to keep it going. And Brian Robb, who had been Titan Managing Editor, um, had um, been made redundant few months earlier. Matt McAllister, who had been editing um, Total Sci-Fi, was also let go. And basically, the um, the three of us got together and said, well, look, you know, th there is a definite gap in the marketplace for something like this. Um, we ought to do it. And uh, it was very much, it was the three of us to begin with. Matt then got a full-time editing gig and sort of step back from day-to-day -day involvement and it is done by Brian and I because I enjoy and read faster therefore I probably do the reviews faster um, audios I have two dogs that have to be walked every day listening to episodes on audio is a perfect thing to be doing during <laughs> that so therefore you do get through um, a lot of stuff in that um, so yeah Ron and I, it is our site, it's not mine, it, it is yeah. our site and we do it between us and, um, you know, the postings for news stories is, tends to be whoever gets them first. Uh, we share reviews out of TV programmes. Other people assist us. Um, we've had uh, various people who volunteered 
um, to cover things as reviews or whatever. Um, but the majority of it comes from us, and it is basically continuing the way that I did Dreamwatch back yeah. in the day. Where we're negative, there is a reason for the negativity. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not, oh, this is rubbish. It is, this isn't very good because. Right. Um, although it's interesting, I've actually just been um, part of a conversation on Facebook um, from an author by the name of Chuck Wendig. Um, oh, yeah. Who, uh, very good writer. I can highly recommend his stuff. Um, I've been lucky enough to do some copy editing work on some of his books, but I um, did that because I asked to, because I'd enjoyed reading the earlier ones. Yeah. Um, where we're talking about writers writing negative reviews of other people's stuff, and I think that there is there are too many books out there. There are too many things to listen to to spend your time on something that you that is either badly written or badly put together. Uh, so it's actually more fun to, you know, you, you do end up with more positive stuff. Yeah. If people choose to read into that, if the material isn't covered that we don't like it, that's unfortunate because sometimes it is sheer time in the day. It doesn't mean we don't necessarily like it. But, yeah. um, you know, I do prefer to be posting positive stuff. You mentioned... That's what they want you to think. It's not a particularly geeky book, but I want to talk about that a little bit as we start talking about the books you've been writing lately, because that was a book that I uh, conceived and hired you to write at my former day job. And it's a great, I'm biased, of course, but it's a great conspiracy overview. Do you want to talk a little bit about working on that book? Yeah, it, it's... It's Conspiracy 101. That's the way that I've described it to people. Yeah. Um, I don't have to explain to people what 101 is in this country because they just think of George Orwell's Room 101 and start <laughs> running away from it thinking it's full of rats. But anyway, I think you, it is actually quite a geeky book um, in that it goes into a number of things that turn up, a number of conspiracy theories that do turn up in um, geeky shows. I mean, Kennedy's oh, that's true. Um, yeah. Notably. It was interesting because I went into it with some preconceptions on some of the theories and then actually examining the evidence and the um, agreement that you and I reached regarding this was that it was going to be an even-handed book. We were going to present the evidence one way or t'other, um, what facts there were, and then um, where it was feasible to assess them, uh, which wasn't always the case. And I certainly, well, it wasn't because in some cases there just isn't sufficient evidence. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I went in with certain preconceived ideas, uh, just from the reading that I'd done over the last <clears throat> decades. And, uh, oh, is that a glitch on the tape? Yes. <laughs> uh, and I came out from from the other side, from the writing, uh, with very different views on some things, having actually gone back into the original uh, files, things like reading yeah, the autopsy report on Marilyn Monroe, mm -hmm. um, looking at the evidence regarding the um, analysis of the audio recording of um, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, um, in the case of Dr. David Kelly, a British scientist um, 
who the conspiracy theories was murdered because he gave away certain information about um, the dossier that led to the second Iraq war, Iraq war view, um, <laughs> you know, actually traveling to his home village in Oxfordshire and walking from his, the, the end of the drive of his house to the spot where his body was found. Um, made it very clear that a load of the conspiracy theories were absolute bunkum because <laughs> the geography of the place did not allow that sort of thing to happen. Yeah. Um, it would be the equivalent of saying that, um, that somebody could walk down the National Mall in Washington and not be seen by anybody. <laughs> you know, yeah. that doesn't happen at any time of day. But because people were talking about an Oxfordshire village... They just assumed that you know certain factors would be at play. So yes, that was a that was a fascinating book to write. What was the one conspiracy theory that you were most surprised by? Maybe one that that you flipped sides during the research. The evidence they found about James Earl Ray and Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. which was that when they digitized all of the FBI documentation, they discovered that um, James Earl Ray's alibi had always been that or part of his alibi was that he didn't shoot uh, Dr. King uh, and he the first he knew about the shooting was when he heard the news on his car radio as he was driving away the FBI report on his car notes that there is no radio in it (laughs) now when you've got something like that that was just hidden in a file you start going Okay, and then you realize just how much stuff unravels from there. Um, all of this great stuff, and I'm sure you were the same, Scott, when you saw the stuff in the papers in the last few weeks about um, Groom Lake and Area 51. And the CIA admit that XYZ was happening there and that these planes were happening, and they finally admitted it. And I'm thinking, we had that in the book. Yeah. Because CIA released that documentation five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, it wasn't new when we were writing that book. But because somebody in the whatever paper it was, Herald Post, New York um, Times, whatever, um, spotted something somewhere, suddenly it became a big story. Um, An awful lot of the evidence in these cases is there in public view if people choose to look for it. The problem is, as we said, and there's a a quote from, I think, I can't remember, somebody talking about the, the, the birthers or I think, I think it's the birther movement at the end of the book, is that basically um, people who want to believe something will shift their ground the yeah. minute that something, some evidence turns up that disagrees with them. And so many of the conspiracy theories get created in the gaps between the evidence. Yeah. So it can be very hard to establish something one way or the other because it's just something that's not known. In some cases, it's not knowable, you know, especially as time goes by. If you look back on the JFK assassination, uh, there are still things that I find puzzling about the story. And, but at this, at this remove from when it actually happened, it's unlikely that you'll be able to nail any of these things down. The only way that some of these things will ever be nailed is if and when a time machine is invented and somebody can go back and then you get the whole are you by observing it 
changing the course. But no, you couldn't. I can't tell what either of you is thinking at the moment. If the three of us sat down and wrote an account of this conversation in an hour's time <laughs> or in a day's time, mm -hmm. we'd have three completely different versions because of the perspective we've got and everything like that. So, you know, it is... It annoys me when people refuse... You know, they, they ask for XYZ to be produced to um, disprove a theory. It's produced, and they just say, well, no, you faked it. I tend to take a pretty uh, sort of nuanced approach to the conspiracy theories. and I, it's, it's the approach that I think we both tried to take in the book, and that is open-minded but skeptical and really just trying to look at what is known, what can be known, yeah. and, uh, you know, and see where it leads you. And if at the end of the day it leads you to a place where you still just have, have to kind of shrug and say, I don't know, <laughs> well, yeah. that's fine. Whereas for me as an editor, as I was conceiving this book, and as a person who is personally interested in conspiracy theories. There's a huge wall of books in I have, our house, Yes, there's a huge wall of which books. Which is currently in my room because I <laughs> no, moved. No, no, it isn't. You're, it's imagining, you're imagining it. It's, <laughs> I can't wait for when my friends not, come over and they're like, what? looking for. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what's, what's all that? I'm like, oh, those are all conspiracy books. They'll be yeah. like, yeah. okay, but that's the, great. Ella. The, the average conspiracy book, and a lot of this has to do with just simple marketing, but the average conspiracy book, it's either for the conspiracy or against the conspiracy. And there's no gray area. It's just black and white. And it, and it's just, it cheerleads for its particular point of view. They can be great books. But to me, what was missing was something along the lines of this book that doesn't start out, this is the point that I'm going to push. No, I, I agree. And uh, it's, a, it's a great little book, so everyone rush out there and uh, download it onto your Kindle. <laughs> yeah. You'll enjoy it. Paul, you have turned into, like, the hardest working writer in show business. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to list the titles of four books. A Brief Guide to C.S. Lewis, From Mere Christianity to Narnia. Middle Earth Envisioned, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, On Screen, On Stage, and Beyond. A Brief Guide to Oz, 75 Years Going Over the Rainbow, and Who at 50, Celebrating Five Decades of Doctor Who. And I should mention that both Who at 50 and Middle Earth Envisioned are uh, with uh, Brian J. Robb. So those are four books that you've got coming out just over the next few months. <laughs> Have you been sleeping at all the last year? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> And I run three choirs, and apart from everything else, yeah. Yeah, um, and the website. And the website. It's been busy, but um, that's often the case in this game. It's feast or famine. Yes, um, exactly. The, the the Tolkien book, Middle Earth Envisaged, and Lewis were being written simultaneously um, because of various delays on projects, which is part of the reason that I invited Brian to join me on Middle Earth Envisaged, because... It just was too much to do for one person mm -hmm. by the, at the time and on the time frame that they wanted. They're four very different books. Um, the well, Lewis and Oz are in a series that is a brief guide or a brief history, uh, which is published by Constable and Robinson in this country in Britain and by Running Press 
in the US. Um, and they are very similar. They are one-on-one guides to the, the particular topic. Uh, the first one I did of them was A Brief History of the Spy, which was a look at um, spying from the Cold War um, onwards, which was interesting enough, a book that um, as a more general spy history that we'd actually pitch as a follow-up to mm-hmm. that's what they want you to think. Yep. Uh, um, and yeah, I'd like to interject here that when I listed off all those books, I only listed the geeky titles. I didn't <laughs> list all the other books that you've been doing. The Mammoth Book of Prison Breaks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, the, the Brief Guide series, they are basically what they say on the tin. The idea is that you can come in with no knowledge of a subject and you come out with a good guide to um, the person or the subject involved. C.S. Lewis, um, the creator of Narnia, and also the Perilandra trilogy and uh, many, many other books, um, died on the 22nd of November 1963, a date that obviously is very familiar to Americans. Uh, His death was obviously overshadowed by um, the news that was coming out from Dallas. Uh, He's being honoured in Westminster Abbey with a plaque in Poets Corner uh, on the 50th anniversary, and that was sort of the trigger for the book. And that's an overview of everything to do with Narnia and um, his work. So it looks not just at his life, there's a brief biography, but it also looks at all of his fiction and non-fiction writing uh, with brief descriptions and idea of where they came from. And then with the Narnia um, material, it also looks at all the very, very many and different adaptations there's been over the years. And I uh, got in touch with a lot of writers, composers, authors, directors um, around the world who had worked on the project. So uh, I had an email today from a writer in New Zealand uh, who had adapted some of the books who I'd sent a copy to. There's um, a guy, Kevin Norbert, in Portland, um, Brian Sibley, who's written the um, making of books on the Tolkien movies, yes. the Tolkien movies, was a great help in this. Um, and he talks about the work he did adapting the Narnia stories for audio. So it, it's, you know, an overall guide. Um, Oz, which comes out in Britain on my 50th birthday in November and is out over there in early February, I believe, just because of the, the way publications work over the Christmas period. Yes. Um, that is, again, it looks at the original stories and one of the... the things I just hadn't realised, and I think most people don't realise, is just how many original stories were written by Frank Baum in the Oz universe. He wrote yeah. a number and then they were continued and it's now called The Famous 40 and they are the canonical Oz. You know, it's like Star Trek canonical. Yeah. There's some animated stuff that we don't talk about. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, so that we covered that and then the book also covers all the many, many different versions of Oz that there have been over the years, um, from the Jackson 5 cartoon to, um, yeah, there was a Jackson 5 cartoon <laughs> in the early 70s. Look it up on YouTube. Um, they, oh, boy. Virtually every American comedy series has done a Wizard of Oz episode where yeah. some character gets knocked on the head and, oh, gee, they're Dorothy, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so finding all of those... and. Wonderfully, P. 
people in their masochism have uploaded these things to YouTube. <laughs> Um, and you can watch them in all their glory. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm okay. Without watching no, 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 them, yeah, you can get no, by. You, you, yeah, you I think really survive. It'll be tough. If you only watch one, find the one that's called Funky Fables: The Wizard of Oz. It is. You really, really, really will not believe it when you watch it. Um, <laughs> it's the one that I recommend to everybody. It's just. Were. The interesting thing with that is that um, we that book has had more rewrites in copy edit stage than anything else I've done, because everybody keeps announcing they're doing new Oz projects for yeah. um, for the fall season. There's um, Tim Gring from Heroes is doing one. Uh, the guys behind Elementary are doing one. Um, the Sci-Fi Channel are doing Warriors of Oz. There's um, there's four or five that have been announced since the middle of July. Um, uh, there's uh, Red Brick Road from uh, Warners. The, yeah. And then there's Oz the Great and Powerful 2, you know. Oh, yeah. It's the smaller balloon or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's been interesting. And, of course, the Judy Garland movie um, comes out, you know, it celebrates its 75th anniversary in... Uh, August next year, and they're re-releasing that. I believe they're talking about a 3D release, and goodness knows what else. IMAX 3D, yes. It seems unnecessary to me, but uh, I want to back up a second to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. talking. J.R.R. is on the record as stating that he hates allegory. It would bother him when people would try to read all sorts of stuff into Lord of the Rings. Well, of course, then you have C.S. Lewis. And that's what C.S. Lewis does, mm -hmm. <laughs> is a lot of Christian allegory in uh, Narnia particularly, but also in the, uh, the science fiction trilogy. Yeah. And so I wonder, did you ever come across anything where C.S. Lewis commented about allegory or about J.R.R.'s grim outlook on allegory compared to what C.S. Lewis did. Having read so much on both, I, I couldn't say there's a specific comment without going back through research. But uh -huh. um, I think the key thing is that um, where Lewis was very respectful of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien had little time for Narnia. He felt yeah. that um, he felt that Lewis was mixing a lot of different things together. If you think about it, there's Norse legends feed into it. You know, you've got in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you've got Father Christmas, you've got the Witch from the North, you've got the the Christianity allegory with uh, with Aslan. Yeah. Um, he didn't like the mix and match mm -hmm. aspect of it. Um, and the thing about it is that. Tolkien and Lewis are linked because they were part of the Inklings. It was a writer's club. Yeah. It's like saying that um, two writers in a writer's group are bound to like the same thing or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. It happened in that writer's group. There were two writers, in fact, there were more. I mean, some of the other, you know, some of the other people involved, um, you know, were published authors. Um, Jack Lewis's brother was a military historian with some, you know, some really good books to his name. Um, but Lewis and Tolkien were writing some of the things. I mean, the other point that's worth noting is that Lewis and Tolkien had a falling out. Mm -hmm. 
um, for various reasons and you know aspects of that are covered in the book then neither um, Middle Earth Envisaged or Brief Guide to Lewis um, go into prurient detail uh, because no. that's not the sort of style that I do in any of my writing I'm not interested um, I will be told stuff or discover stuff stuff stays off the record yeah well, it depends, it depends on the book, too, whether it's fitting in the book. And when you're doing an overview like this, it's yeah. not fitting to get into those I'm, personal things. But I'm not interested in writing a book that does. Yeah. Um, you know, if you get involved with any uh, group of people for a length of time, you are going to get to know things about them that other people don't need to know. Exactly. Um, and that applies whether it's a group of writers, it's a group of actors, it, whatever it is. And I have always worked on the basis that, you know, unless I'm told something's on the record, it's, you know, it isn't. And uh, it, that applies in the writing as well. That You know, there are certain aspects in the book that I've got coming out next year on Stephen King um, that have been documented, have been about his life, but they're not relevant to a book that is about basically his writing. Right. Um, you know, in somebody, the case of Stephen King, as he admitted, he had addiction problems, and they are relevant to his writing because they fed into, you know, some of the books that he wrote. They are either very blatantly or not blatantly about addiction. Uh, so therefore, that becomes a relevant factor. Um, the cause of Lewis and Tolkien's falling out is mentioned in passing. Uh, it's connected to Lewis's marriage um, and the way that he failed to tell Tolkien about what was happening. But it meant that at the period when Narnia was popular, Tolkien wasn't perhaps as interested. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a simplification, and I can hear... If Una's listening to this, probably uh, <laughs> a shout coming from Oxford in my direction, and I'm not pretending that it's anything other than simplification. Um, but the two men, you know, as, as happens, and I'm sure it's happened to many listeners, it's certainly happened to me, people you work with and writing, stuff like that, that you work with and 10, 15 years ago, you're not writing with all now, because as happens in every other part of your life, friendships move on, your life moves in different directions. You, you mentioned Stephen King. I realize that I don't have that on the list here. That's another brief guide. Oh, okay, great. Um, and that's coming out April. Well, that should be April both sides, I hope, because that is designed to coincide with the 40th anniversary of Carrie. And it's a, um, it is a celebration mm -hmm. of a writer whose work I have collected from the age of about 16, 17. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily first editions because I couldn't afford first editions. Um, but I have a copy of every single one of his books. Um, did you reread his entire uh, pile of uh, tomes for the for the book? Did I reread every single word of every single one? No. Did I go back into every single one to check details um, where I wasn't hundred percent certain? Yes. Has it the manuscript been read by people like me who have read all the books over the years? Yes. Could I shoot some of the people who put um, entries on Wikipedia about stuff? <laughs> told, it doesn't say that. Yes, it 
dance. Stand By Me, the film, and The Body, the novella, are not set in the same year, contrary to popular opinion. Um, they're set very close in time, but they're not the same. The movie was changed in time to take advantage of the um, music that could be put into it. Mm -hmm. Ditto, The Green Mile, is set three years later, the film, because they wanted to use, uh, they wanted to put, I think it was Top Hat, in. The book's not about the films. All the films are covered and the TV series adaptations are covered, um, but not in massive detail. This is a celebration of Stephen King, not um, people who have uh, added to King's stuff. Okay. But with that, there was uh, a lot of things I didn't realise, such as um, the... Well, I knew about the Ghost Brothers of Dartland County, the uh, album and stage show he's written with John Mellencamp and T-Bone Burnett. Oh, yeah. Which came out um, in uh, June, I think, the, the album came out. But that is well worth listening to. That's, that's a great album. Um, and, of course, the uh, Doctor Sleep, the mm -hmm. sequel Shining, hit stores in 10 days' time, and uh, that was great fun. That's a terrific book. Um, King really very much still at the top of his game. Fabulous. Have you read, uh, well, I'm sure you have, the uh, the Kennedy novel eleven twenty two sixty three. How was that? I, I read I've read all of his stuff in recent times as soon as it's come out. I mean, it, mm -hmm. uh, it's for me it's covering themes that he covered in the Dead Zone. You know, when okay. would it be right to um, effectively change history? Um, you know, can a lone assassin do something? I think that there's um, there are sections in it where there are overlaps with it um, mm -hmm. and with some of his other earlier work that perhaps could be a little bit clipped back, but um, it's not a bloated novel like the Tommy Knockers or some of the others where you know you don't where you feel why on earth am I being told this? Um, yes. There's a drive to eleven twenty two sixty three, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it when I read it. Um, I think, I know it was. It, it came out not long after we started Sci-Fi Bulletin, so I know the reviews up there. Plug. Um, <laughs> so to find out more, read what I said online. <laughs> Have you read both uh, the stand, the original, and the long version? Yes. And how would you compare and contrast those two? The stand, the original version, of the stand was the book that got me into King. I was. I tell the story in the introduction to the book, but. Basically, at the end of 1982, I was at a conference in uh, Switzerland and I discovered that on New Year's Day, Switzerland shuts. And I mean, oh. shuts. Nothing <laughs> is open. Uh, or it was, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, so all I could get was a can of Coke from the vending machine, bars of chocolate, and somebody left a copy of the stand there. <laughs> I still have that copy, and I basically I spent New Year's Day and the 2nd of January reading it. Uh, I have read it a dozen times since. I've read the new version once. Now I know the story behind it, that King delivered the 1,200-page manuscript. Doubleday said, no, we can only print 800 pages. You need to cut 400 pages out, um, which he did himself. And they formed the basis of the, um, the extended edition with that fed back in and rewritten. Um, if it had just been fed back in, I think I would like the extended. The problem is that he altered some of the characterization. Oh. Um, 
in yeah, if you actually go through in detail, there are various scenes and various descriptions of people and actions. Um, plus, there's an epilogue that okay makes sense given that Randall Flagg turns up in other books now. But for me, the stand is the original. At the time the unexpurgated version came out, I had not read the original when I read that longer version. I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't think it felt padded. You know, it's a, it's a big story. Mm. And, you know, so it's, it's a long book. I thought it held up well. But, yeah, I've always been kind of curious about people who've read both. One of the interesting things is that the TV movie version that King oh, yeah. scripted is based on the original. Mm-hmm. There are tiny little bits from the extended, but it is basically the original. It's a different thing. The, the stand, the unexpurgated version, is a very different beast from doing a sequel. I think the stand, unexpurgated version is rechewing your food far more than the accusations that King is expecting with Dr. Sleep that he's doing that by doing a sequel to The Shining. Mm. Um, it's not The Shining 2, despite what Amazon may think. It is a continuation using some of those characters. It just happens that there are two books with the same central characters. Yeah. Um, you know, it's Danny Torrance is a six-year-old boy, five-year-old, six-year-old boy in The Shining. He's an adult in Doctor Sleep. Yeah. You know, and um, you set a book, you know, you write a book about a child and then about that child as an adult. It's going to be a different book different sort of story shall we uh, we talk a little bit more about who at 50 well, who at 50 is uh this was brian's idea uh which he invited me to become part of uh we wanted to do something with sci-fi bulletin for the 50th anniversary of doctor who um brian has been heavily involved with doctor who fandom over the years i'm 16 days older than the show you know it's been part of my life throughout um so we knew we had to market in some way, and we, we looked at maybe doing a, an equivalent of the 45s with it, with um, Brian, myself, and Soph watching episodes and commenting from different perspectives. Um, but that actually did feel a little bit like we were going back over stuff. So Brian came up with a list of 50 iconic elements of Doctor Who that would allow us to both tell the history of the show but also provide an overview of it. So it's things like the TARDIS, things like regeneration, where you're talking about something that happened at a specific time in the show's history, but talking about it across the history. Right. Um, and uh, Rich Handley at Haslam Books um, was very interested in publishing this. So the essays are appearing um, on the website. They... we. There was a hiatus across the summer because I had both um, Oz and King to write and Brian was working on his projects. Um, but we are now sort of trying to get them back up a couple of weeks. They will then be reworked to an extent and added to, and there will be some new essays and they will form Who at 50, which will come out some point in the spring next year. We're, uh, we were looking at trying to do something for, to go up for the 50th anniversary. But to be perfectly honest, I am looking, but just look on my desk at the moment, I have got one, two, three, four, five, six guides that are coming out, two official, four unofficial, all of which are coming out between now and November, <laughs> all of which are covering a lot of the same ground. Mm -hmm. um, okay, one's from an American author, Alan Kistler, one's from a couple of Canadian, Canadian and Australian, 
um, there, and the others are British, but they're all, you know, it's Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who. Um, what we decided was that there, we would not have time to do it on that sort of basis. It just wasn't going to be feasible. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you're writing those sort of essays at the time to do it, to get it out for November, would have meant adding an extra 2,000 words to our word count per virtually per day um, at a time when we're working on books, and that's just not a sensible use of time. Yeah. Uh, so we decided it would give us... And then, of course, Matt Smith's... Um, Departure was announced in June. Peter Capaldi's start of the Doctor will be at Christmas. So we will actually be one of the first books that will look at the 11th Doctor era completely. We'll be able to include the um, John Hurt Doctor from the 50th anniversary. We'll be covering Smith's departure and Capaldi's arrival um, and the way that, you know, things are changing for the 12th Doctor and what that means um, with an older Doctor for the show going forward and it will be available from Hassling presumably um, from the spring that's what we're aiming at have you read or watched anything geeky lately that you really love well we won't include Star Trek into darkness into that then reading Doctor Sleep the the new king mm-hmm. was um, was very much I that that was a highlight of reading I um, there are some really good books coming out to tie in with the Doctor Who anniversary. There's one called The Doctor, His Lives and Times, uh, which is coming out worldwide uh, by James Goss and Steve Tribe, um, which is just an absolutely brilliant look over the show. And I just sort of look at that and go, I wish I'd written that. I <laughs> so wish I'd written that. I'm looking forward to seeing what S.H.I.E.L.D.'s like. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope that lives up to the promise. Um... I do wonder if the perils of a weekly schedule could compromise things. I'm looking forward to, and I know it started over there a lot yesterday, two days ago, with a new series of Haven. I'm looking forward to the final episodes of Warehouse 13. Mm-hmm. Not because they're the final episodes, but <laughs> because I've enjoyed Warehouse 13 uh, from the start. Um, geeky to an extent, I'm thoroughly enjoying we have series six of Burn Notice running over here at the moment. I know you've just had the end of the show. Yeah. Um, which, thanks, folks, on Facebook for spoiling it. Um, <laughs> that's a show that I really uh, enjoy because it's not... Yeah, it, it's fantasy, of course it is, um, but it's not sci-fi fantastic. What I enjoy is that because of the sci-fi bulletin, get sent stuff, review copies, and I find books and authors that I wouldn't have read otherwise. Um, You know, so there's always that sort of that, quote, joy of discovery in that respect. Well. Jerry Anderson, we should. I was just about to say, is there anything else you want to talk about? And I had forgotten. I want to make sure we get that plug in. Yeah, let's talk about Jerry Anderson. We were saying earlier about one of the things that I loved was um, the Jerry Anderson show, Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet. Um, the Super Mario Nation shows of the 60s and, um, and then the live action shows of the 70s. And um, recently, and it's still running, there's a Kickstarter project going, which has been set up by Jamie Anderson, uh, Jerry's son. And the purpose of this is to complete a novel um, that Jerry Anderson started um, in the last few years of his life while he was uh, beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's disease. 
um, and it's called Gemini Force One. And they've brought in um, an author by the name of M.G. Harris, who wrote a series of YA books called The Joshua Files. Um, and if the Kickstarter is successful, then this will be the start of a series of books that basically is a new Jerry Anderson series. And obviously there's the potential for TV or film based on it. But it is well worth backing. Uh, it's one of the rare occasions that I have been tempted to get involved in on those projects from talking to Jamie and to MG about it. It just looks like such a classic Jerry Anderson concept. Yeah, you can tell it's it's got that Anderson DNA going through it. Yeah. Um, but with a 21st century twist and um, talking to both Jamie and MG, they have um, they've told me various aspects of it that they're revealing to people who've signed up for the Kickstarter, so I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil it. Yeah. And, we, and the articles on the website deliberately um, didn't mention this stuff, but um, it is... It's very cool, but and it but it is very much an Anderson show for the twenty first century, uh, rather than trying to just you know do a sixties show again. All of our listeners can uh, rush out to Kickstarter and take a look at that and decide if they want to support it. Uh, I, we're we're, uh, we're huge fans. That was uh, that was some of the stuff that I showed to Ella when she was small. I started showing her Stingray and Captain Scarlet when she was quite young and you know I still I still love those shows and I, and of course I'm a diehard UFO fan I just love UFO just crazy much well this has been fabulous thanks so much for coming on the show you're very welcome and we will uh, look forward to chatting with you again sometime I have no doubt we will that's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 14, Robin Geek. We'll be talking about a few of the many versions of everyone's favorite outlaw, Robin Hood. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a large oak tree in Sherwood Forest. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. Geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Danny.